So that's our orientation here to the book of Genesis. And, and I want to uh, just kind of dive in this morning because we do have a lot to talk about. This book, this chapter specifically of Genesis is highly controversial, isn't it? Lots of people talking about Genesis chapter 1 and its meaning and significance in our lives. And a lot of people want to kind of um, recast Genesis 1 for us. They want to kind of push a, a certain kind of understanding upon us. And this morning, I just want to hear clearly from God, from his word. I want to hear what God has to say with, to us in his word in Genesis 1, not our preconceived notions. And so I want to pray that God accomplishes that this morning. Would you pray with me as we go to his word this morning? Lord, allow us to see with new eyes, the eyes of faith, that you will introduce yourself to us in your word in Genesis 1. Allow us to see your power and authority. And allow us to bow our hearts and our heads, bow our lives before you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever hear the song in the 1980s, Everybody Wants to Rule the World? Some of you, that predates you. Some of you, it postdates you. Everybody wants to rule the world. We've tried to change the world throughout history through all kinds of different means. And typically, it uses words, doesn't it? Like we could throw out in front of you here this morning, we could throw out book after book, literary piece after literary piece of people who tried to change the world with their words. We could talk about Rene Descartes who claimed to have reformed the world in six days. We could talk about uh, books like 1984 or uh, these masterary literary pieces that tried to change the world and its orientation through what was written. And we recognize that the, throughout history, we have tried to change the world with our words, haven't we? We can talk about oral traditions of, of groups of people that have passed down their tradition from generation to generation to form the world or to explain the world around them and how that has uh, lent a certain kind of thing. I, this week, tried to change my world through my words. You ever do that? I found myself speaking to someone in my family with increasing volume trying to change my world with words. We are people who, in our desperation, want to change what we have around us with the way we speak. Everybody's doing this, aren't they? This is why politicians give speeches. This is why we um, amend the Constitution. This is why we do all of these things to try and change the world with our words. But when we come to Genesis chapter 1, we're presented with a God who doesn't just change the world with words. We're presented with a God who forms and creates the world with words. And he does so out of nothing. The Latin term that we throw around is ex nihilo, that he does it from nothing, that there's nothing that predates him, that he kind of forms. He speaks out of nothing something. So this morning, what we're looking at in Genesis chapter 1 is that God, God's words form our reality. God's words, the speech that he uses, actually form the reality that we live in. We're going to see this in three different phases as God kind of creates. He does so in, in three different stages. In verses 1 through 2, God creates matter. And what he does is he creates a chaotic world in verses 1 and 2. And then in verses 3 through 10, God 
kind of forms the world. He structures the world. And we'll look into that in verses 3 through 10. And then in verses 11 through 25, God fills the world that he's created. In fact, it would even kind of push beyond verse 25 uh, through the end of chapter 1. But we plan in our next sermon in Genesis 1 to really hone in on the, the creation of man. So this morning we want to dive in. God created a chaotic world. Look at what Jesse read for us this morning in verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. See, God tells us a number of things about his creative act here in Genesis 1, verses 1 through 2. The first thing is he says that God created at the beginning. Moses kind of sets the timeline for us, and he sets the left end of that timeline, doesn't he? He says that this is what happened at the beginning of time. This book starts at the, uh, the beginning of everything. There's a character in this book that already existed, though, right? There's a God who preexisted the first moments of creation, And as God stands above time and beyond time, he highlights his eternality here in Genesis chapters one, or chapter one, verses one and two. See, God, our God that we worship is one without beginning or end. From generation to generation, he is God. It's important to recognize that that God predates all of his creation because there's no material or, or anything else that exists when God creates, right? There's not some, like, um, something laying around that God kind of grabs and forms into creation. In fact, if you look at other creation accounts, like Enuma Elish or some other from ancient Near Eastern texts, you see that they're grabbing materials that existed around them, and, and these gods, so to speak, are forming these things. And so that's how they create the world. Like, I think in Enuma Elish, they grab the carcass of some dead thing, and they form it into the world. Or if you're understanding Greek mythology, these titans kind of grab all of this different material, and they put it together, and that's how the world is formed. But when God predates everything, he pre-exists everything, he's over everything. He spoke everything into existence. And so God creates at the beginning. But secondly, what we see in the second part of verse 1 is that God creates the whole world. Moses says it for us. He said, God created the heavens and the earth. In case you're doing the math at home, that's everything, right? There's nothing that doesn't fall underneath the created order that belongs to heaven or belongs to earth in the ancient Near Eastern mind. And so Moses is showcasing the fullness of God's creation. That is, nothing has been made that God hasn't formed himself. It stands in contrast to so many of those gods that we read about so long ago that were the God of one thing or another thing. They were the God of the sun or the moon or the stars or the sea or the harvest or fertility or whatever else, right? They were this God over this one particular area and they had this kind of control over it and they manipulated that to make humans serve them. But this God is the God over all things, heaven and earth. So God creates at the beginning. God creates all things. But in verse 2, we see something interesting. God creates a chaotic world. Look at what he says. He says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. You're saying, what in the world does that mean? It's without form. It's void. The two terms that Moses uses here are tohu and bohu, which is kind of fun because they both rhyme with tofu. 
which tofu in the original Hebrew means tasteless, right? But tohu and bohu are these ideas that, that they're chaotic, that tohu specifically means that there's a chaos, an undecidedness to this creation. And, and bohu is this idea that it's, it's kind of, um, it's like a wasteland, that there's nothing there. It's, it's a word that's used to describe deserts throughout the rest of the Bible. And so this, this creation is kind of topsy-turvy. It's always kind of moving and shaping and shiftless, or, or shapeless and shifting, I should say. And not only that, it's a wasteland. There's nothing productive. There's no trees or plants or anything that's creating anything. It's just kind of there. And so the point is that, that two, uh, these two words highlight that God created a world that wasn't originally formed. And what he's going to do is he's going to bring order to this chaos. And secondly, more importantly almost, in, in the second half of verse 2, we see that God is present with his creation. Look at what he says. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That, that term hovering is used later on in the scriptures of, of an eagle that flies over its eggs. It's caring for its creation. The Spirit of God is there present in the chaos of creation. And so we have this picture, right? We have this picture in Genesis 1, 1 and 2 of, of a God who creates a world that's formless and void, that's chaotic, that's uh, interrupted, that's vast and uh, a wasteland, so to speak. And God is hovering over the presence of it, and he's about to bring form to it. See, it's a reminder this morning that God formed the materials of our world, didn't he? Here God makes the heavens and the earth, and then he's going to shape the world that we know, but it's good for us to pause and consider that everything that has come into existence came from God's mouth, that he spoke everything into existence from nothing. And as he has spoken everything into existence, as he has spoken it from nothing, he has full authority over all those things. You realize that this morning, that God has full authority over you and I because he created us. He might step back and say, no, 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 he created Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve had babies, and, and they created me that way. Well, that's not really the way the psalmist speaks in Psalm 139. The psalmist says that uh, before I was in the womb, you formed, or you formed me while I was in the womb. Right? He, he affirms God's continued creative act and his rule and reign over us. Romans 11, Paul highlights this. He says that everything is from God, which is what we're seeing here in Genesis 1, isn't it? Everything's from God. Everything is created. Every atom that exists, every uh, thing that we know, that we see, that we touch, that we smell, everything came from God. It was created by God here in Genesis chapter 1. And, and because of that, Romans 11 goes on to say everything is from him and it's through him. We saw in Colossians chapter 1 that he's actively sustaining and keeping all things together. It's from him and it's through him and it's going to return to him as well as Romans chapter 11 says. But Moses isn't done. And God's going to kind of speak into existence a form and fullness on his creation. And so the second part we see is that God created the world with form. Look at verses 3 through 10. He says, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. 
And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so, and God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God said that it was good. See, what we see in the remainder of this chapter is this kind of formula. And uh, Logan's going to pull it up on the PowerPoint for us this morning. We see seven different phases or I should say phrases that are used that kind of highlight this kind of activity of God in creating. First, there's an announcement, and God said, and then there's a divine order, let there be light, or let there be an expanse, and then there's fulfillment, and it was so. There's execution, and there was. Uh, And then finally, God kind of gives his approval. He sees what he created, and he pronounces it good. Uh, Later on in the chapters, uh, he'll start, he initially starts naming uh, these items, and then he'll eventually move to blessing them, and we'll look at that in just a minute. And then finally, uh, Moses gives a, a kind of a summary of what day it was. And you might say, why does, why does Moses write this way? Why does Moses kind of um, institute this order in the way he accounts this creation? Well, what it does is it stands in contrast to the chaos uh, of verse 2. See, the world was without form, it was void, and Moses brings form and structure to the creative work of God. And he starts to lay out that God is not a God of chaos, not a God of disorder, but God is a God of order. And he sees the chaos and the vast uh, kind of wasteland that's in front of him, and he brings fullness and meaning and structure to it. So let's look at day one. God created light. God said, let there be light, and there was light in verse three. God speaks and accomplishes exactly what he desires. It's not like he just like, took a try and said, let there be light, and it turned out to be like neon. You know, oh, I don't quite like that, so I'm going to try to get Let there be light, and he tried a second time, and eventually, third or fourth time, he got it right. No, that's not the way it worked. God had this notion in his mind of what he wanted. He spoke it into existence, and it was. And then in verse 4, he pronounces that this light was good. That he wasn't warming up, that he wasn't getting it wrong. He pronounces that this light is exactly what he wanted, and it was a good thing. Finally, God names the light and the dark. In the ancient Near Eastern times, if you were to name something, you had control over it. We see this later on in the book of Genesis when, when Jacob wrestles with a pre-incarnate Christ. He's constantly working with him, tell, asking him what his name is. Because Jacob wants to control and have kind of dictation over what God does. And so he's asking for his name so that he can speak that name and kind of manipulate it. See, we use names, or in the Bible times, they use names to kind of control things. And so as God is naming light and dark, he controls it. Here, God names the creation to show that he has the uttermost control over it. So day one, he creates light. Day two, he creates the heavens, right? Kind of the same formula. And what happens is he says, I want the water above to be separated from the water below, and there's this expanse in the middle, and there's this kind of confused language there, but he's describing kind of the separation of the waters into waters above and waters below so that now we have heavens. Day three, God creates the earth. 
and the seas. And we kind of split this day in half, and I'll show you a reason why in a minute. But he creates the earth and the seas. And he starts to, start, starts to speak to the waters and tells them to separate themselves so that dry land appears. So God, again, speaks order into all of this. And what we see in these sections, in these first three days of creation, is not that, uh, that God creates in all of its fullness. There's still more creation to be done. But he's kind of setting up the playing field, as it were. God's kind of creating the form of the world. If, if verses 1 and 2 show us that God created the substance of the earth, verses 3 through 10 show us that he's giving the earth its form, its boundaries. He sets the contours of the world into place so that now we have things like north and east and uh, south and west and up and down. There's times where I'll play uh, games with my kids. So sometimes they want to play kickball. And kickball is pure chaos if you don't have a field set up, right? If there's no out of bounds, you know, everybody gets to kick it wherever they want. And so the first thing you do when you set up a kickball game is you set up, okay, here's first base, and here's second base, and here's third base, and here's home plate, and here's where out of bounds is, right? Because if you don't do that, you don't, you don't have a game, really. You have all of the rules that are broken down. So what God is doing here is he's setting up the boundaries, as it were. He's setting up the field. Psalm 104 speaks this way about how God sets up. He says, he set the earth on its foundation so that it should never be moved. Uh, You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains, and at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they may not or they might not again cover the earth. See, God's authoritative word created mountains and valleys, seas and skies. God is setting up the playing field, right? So God created all matter. He spoke it into existence. God brought form to that matter. Finally, God brings filling to it all. What we see in verses 11 through 25 is all of these arenas that God has created, whether it's the skies above or the seas or the land or whatever else, we see God filling these things with with beings. So look with me at, at verse 11. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruits in which there is, uh, is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be, let, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And so God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. 
And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. See, while these last 11 verses were marked by how, God, how they created the form of the world, now Moses wants to look at how God filled his world. And we can see this just in the structure of the days. You can see that day one, God created light. And in day four, God creates two different lights, so to speak, uh, one to rule over the day and one to rule over the night. In day two, he creates the heavens and the seas. And in day five, he creates birds and fish to fill them. And in day three, he creates earth and vegetation. And in day six, he creates animals and man to kind of fill those, those things up. And so we see this kind of correspondence amongst the days that, that God gives us form. And then he fills those forms with his creative uh, beings. And so let's look at day three uh, as we kind of continue. Uh, we saw that God had created um, earth, and veg- or earth on, on, on day three, or land, as it were, and now he creates vegetation. Look at verses 11 through 13. See, God plans the perpetuation of plants through seeds and kinds. See, what happens here throughout the rest of Genesis 1 is Moses starts highlighting this, says that, that he created them according to their kind. And really, it might be kind of bound up with species or different kinds of plants and animals, that God's creating differentiation. He's not just creating a fish or a bird. He's creating different kinds of birds and different kinds of fish that are filling seas and sky, respectively. Well, here, he's creating different kinds of plants. So he's creating Ficuses, as if I actually knew what that was, or uh, aloe plants, or trees of different kinds. He's creating all of these things, and he's filling creation with all of that. Day four, in verses 14 through 19, he creates the sun and the moon, the stars. He's filling the heavens with what he has spoken into existence. In day five, he's creating fish and birds so that he can fill sea, or seas and sky And then in day six, he's creating animals and man. I want to highlight in verse 24 and 25, we see there's this huge differentiation that it describes. In verse 24, it says that he creates livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. He's he's creating uh, kind of these household domesticated animals that uh, these... Israelites would have understood. He's creating wild animals, lions and tigers and bears. Oh my, all of these things that he's, he's also bringing into his creation. And then he's also creating the creeping things, which can be anything from a reptile to an insect. And so it, it kind of spreads the whole gamut of God's creation that there are, are beasts like cows and ox that we use. There's wild animals that we stay away from. And then there's insects and reptiles as well. God's created all of it. So what we see is we see God creates matter. And then he imposes form and fullness on those things as well. But we want to just pull back for a second and say, is Genesis 1 meant to be a science textbook? Or is this really intended for us to kind of, uh, kind of comb through this and try and find some kind of uh, scientific understanding of our world? 
Why did God give his people Genesis chapter 1? What was God really trying to say to his people? And we might step back and say, what repetitions do we see specifically in this word? Well, we've already seen that, that God is specifically speaking things into existence. That he's using his words to bring about the reality in which we live. See, what this passage highlights is, is what God, not what God created, but specifically how God created. See, God speaks and brings form and fullness into his world. This is highlighted most notably by the, the formula that we've already seen. I used to play this game with my kids when they were little. I promise we don't play this game anymore, but we would sit down and we would talk about how God created the world. And then I would say, hey, you know what? Do you know how God created the world? And they would say, with words, right? God, God spoke things into existence. I said, well, let's, let's try it right now. Let's, you and I, let's try it. What do you want? And they say, you know, birthday cake. And they say, okay, let's speak birthday cake into existence. One, two, three, birthday cake. And of course, nothing would come, right? It's because I'm a letdown of a father, right? But we try to highlight this idea that God alone has this ability to speak things into existence, that he has such a control over his creation that he speaks and it becomes. Even genies and our folklore, right? They're bound to their master's will. That they're, they're bound to do something that someone else has to tell them to do. But God's one who creates of his own initiative, in his own way, as he desires from the overflow of his heart, from the natural outflow of his character, he creates. You and I have such a hard time imagining what this would even look like. Everything we create comes from something that existed beforehand, Right? We take a piece of wood and we carve it, or we take steel and we make a car. See, this passage reminds us of the power of God's word. And at the outset of when God starts to speak to his people, Israel, he wants to remind them of the power and authority of his word. I wonder if it might be good for us to just reflect on the power and authority of God's words Whenever God speaks, it comes to pass. This is the promise of the scriptures. We've been bringing this passage up consistently in recent weeks. But Isaiah 55, uh, Isaiah is, is recording the words of God. And God says this. He says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. And it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. God says in Isaiah 55, he says, when I speak, when these words leave my mouth, they do exactly what I sent them out to do. And they don't return to me without accomplishing those things first. See, God's words and God's words alone accomplish what he alone desires. They are affective. They never fail in the purpose for which God has sent them. With that heading, with that understanding, let's just take a quick overview of the scriptures themselves and start to see the effectiveness of the word of God. It's in Genesis 1 here that we see that God speaks the world into creation, and it doesn't just end there. 
In Genesis chapter 12, God is going to speak a promise to this person, Abraham. He says, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And it's by the end of the book of Genesis that there's already kind of a partial fulfillment that happens as Joseph gives food to the whole earth. But we know that Genesis 12 has more meaning that eventually, through Christ, all the world would be brought the gospel of good news. And so God promises something to Abraham, and he's bringing about that fulfillment from Genesis chapter 12. You read the prophets, you read Isaiah and Jeremiah, or the minor prophets, or whoever, any of the prophets, they start and they speak like this. They say, thus says the Lord, and it becomes morally binding for whoever he speaks it to. Because God is going to bring about this thing that he's promising uh, dependent upon their behavior. Speaking of the prophets, they would predict something that was going to happen, right? They would predict what was going to come in the future. They hear the words of God and they recognize that God has the power and the authority to bring it about. Think about Ezekiel Ezekiel chapter 37 where Ezekiel is having this dream and God is saying to him, hey, you see these dead bones, this valley filled with bones? Prophesy over it. Speak my words over this valley of dry bones. And as Ezekiel starts to prophesy the word of God, the bones collect themselves. They take on flesh. They become living creatures. The word of God speaks men into existence. It's in the incarnation of Jesus in John chapter 1 that John describes him as the word of God. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. That God is speaking with clarity through the life of Jesus. And we see this in Mark chapter 4, that as Jesus is in the midst of a storm, he stands up in the boat, and he looks at the wind and the waves, and he says, peace, be still. And by the power and authority of his words... The sea becomes calm, and the winds stop. The disciples marvel and say, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? In Luke chapter 4, he speaks to a demon-possessed man, and he drives out this unclean spirit from this man, and the people of his hometown, Nazareth, marvel at him, and they say, who is this man that he, he even directs unclean spirits with his word? John 11, Jesus comes to the grave of his friend, Lazarus, and he says with words, Lazarus, come forth. He doesn't go and breathe on the body. He doesn't resuscitate him. He doesn't do mouth to mouth. He doesn't do anything. He speaks, and Lazarus comes out of the grave. If we take that as the case for ourselves in James chapter 1 verse 18 it's by the word of his truth that we ourselves come forth as well and as we take in the book of revelation we see no different here when jesus returns to the earth in revelation 19 he returns to this kind of description in in revelation 19 he's on this white horse he comes to the nations. He is clothed in a white robe dipped in blood. And it says this in Revelation 19:13, and the name by which he is called is what? The word of God. And by the end of Revelation 19, the sword that comes out of his mouth strikes down the nations. So that God's word from Genesis to Revelation is fully authoritative. 
that it accomplishes whatever he designs and desires, that nothing thwarts it, that nothing takes it away, nothing stops the word of God from working its work in his world. It's no different here in Genesis 1. I wonder if we might take the remainder of our time and we might just unpack just three implications. Now, there's a million implications for what we see according to the power and authority of God's word. But I just want to take a moment just to unpack three implications of God's all-defining word. See, our premise this morning is that God's word forms reality. And the first thing we see is because God's word defines reality, God's world is rich with meaning Christian, I just want you to grab hold of this this morning because God's world is rich with meaning because God's word exists. And God's word is never thwarted. Just follow this logic with me. God's word created everything in existence, right? That's what we've seen. Second, God's word is eternal. It, it never dissipates. Therefore, everything in existence has significance because it's part of God establishing his kingdom. God speaks everything into existence. God's word exists eternally and never fails in what it accomplishes. And so everything that is in existence has meaning and has purpose. Have you taken this into account? That our world is a nihilistic world? That's a big word that just means that Nothing has meaning. It's a worldview that says that if we believe in nihilism, it's, it's that nothing has any kind of meaning to it. We live in that world. We, we live in a world that's pre- preoccupied with death. We live in a world that, that uh, I was a 90s kid, right? So I remember uh, the band Nirvana. They said this. They said, life is stupid and contagious. That's a, a nihilistic worldview. The truth is, is that God speaks everything into existence for his purpose and for his plan, and that purpose and plan never fades away, it never goes away, it stands eternally, and so everything has purpose and meaning. I might stop, and let's just bring this down to a very applicable level. We've seen an increase in school shootings and in suicides in the last 10, 20 years, haven't we? I mean, can we all agree on that premise? We've seen an increase in those things. Why? Isn't it because we we constantly talk about the meaninglessness of life? We have this nihilistic approach. And we might we might say, okay, there's other contributors, there's you know, violence in our culture, there's media, there's all these other things that contribute it. But in the end, at bottom, we don't value life like we used to because we don't see purpose in everything. The antidote, antidote to the culture of death is the eternal, purposeful word of God. And if we want to undo this culture that is obsessed with death, we have to talk about eternal life. If we want to talk about how to kind of cut the knees out of school shootings, mass death, war, how do we talk about how to do, undo those things? We talk about the word of God. The word of God which can't be thwarted. The word of God which always accomplishes its purpose. See, when we discount the word of God, we embrace death. 
every single time, every time we discount the word of God and we say this is not meaningful, we embrace our death. We see it from Adam and Eve all the way through to the apocalypse in Revelation. When men and women distrust the word of God, we put our arms around death. So our first implication is all of life has meaning because God speaks it into existence and his words never return void to him. Number two, because God's word defines reality, our world is predictable, measurable, and rational. Because God speaks his world into existence and his word is always true, our world is predictable, measurable and rational rational excuse me ever think about this that science depends on created order we were talking about this in our small group the other week um, we tend to think that there's kind of these um, laws of nature right these laws of science that exist and so um, you know those laws exist they're kind of baked into the creation themselves But it might be better for us to think about a God who sustains his creation so that when I drop an apple, it falls to the ground because there's this thing called gravity that God is actively sustaining. That two and two always equals four because there's a God who has created the world with order and he sustains that order. That we have these things that are predictable and measurable and rational because we have a God who is also uh, predictable in his character and has baked that in to the world that he sees. You know, we, we've separated religion and science so much. Jonathan Edwards is, uh, you've probably wrote, read one of his sermons when you were in high school. It's called uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Jonathan Edwards is probably one of the most famous American pastors that's ever lived. But his first published piece was on uh, spiders, his observation of spiders and their habits. And he saw that God created this world with, with beauty and he wanted to investigate the beautiful world which God had created. See, the truth is this morning that because God has created our world with order and not with chaos, that we as Christians should be driven to inspect it, to love it, to investigate it. The sciences should thrive and flourish under the order brought to the world through faith. And as we are people of faith, we should investigate the world that God has made for us. See, God has created the world with patterns, reproducible patterns, and he sustains those patterns actively so that we can rely on them. Now, there's times where God suspends those realities, doesn't he? We call those things miracles. There's times where where someone shows up with the cancer, expecting the cancer to still be there, and it's gone. There's times in, in the scriptures where God causes the sun to move backwards in the book of Joshua. God suspends that reality because he shows himself sovereign over his creation. The third thing we want to see, though, is that because God's word defines reality, we are either blessed or cursed according to how we receive God's word. I want to take a moment and just kind of dive into the book of John. In John 1, we already described it, God... God describes the Son as the Word of God, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. We're talking about the person of Jesus. But when we get to John chapter 3, in verse 38, you can see it here at the bottom of the slide. 
John the Baptist says this. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So here we have the Word of God presented to you and to me. And what John the Baptist lays out is when we believe upon the Son, we should expect eternal life. When we believe in Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection for the forgiveness of all the wrongs that we've done, all the wrongs that we accomplish, we should expect to find grace and mercy from God. We should expect to have eternal life. But when we engage the Son with unbelief, what John says is the wrath of God remains on us. As God presents his word, his speech to us, you and I are called upon to believe upon Christ. What this verse is saying with such clarity is that you and I aren't necessarily condemned because of the lie we told in the second grade. We aren't condemned before God because of the host of bad things that we may have performed in God's presence, in God's sight. The reason why people are condemned is unbelief in Jesus Christ. I want to bring something else to bear from this. Go ahead to the next slide here, Logan. See, there was one. Oh, I messed this up. Never mind. There was one who engaged with belief in Christ or believe in in God's word and yet tasted wrath. If we go back to that slide again, we can see Jesus was one who fully believed in the Father's words. John 8, he says, you know, all that I I hear from my Father, that's what I speak to you. And so he's one who fully believes in God's words, and yet he himself experienced the wrath of God, didn't he? That as Jesus goes to the cross, he dies the death that we deserved in our unbelief. He dies... He takes the punishment upon himself that we deserve for not believing so that you and I might have eternal life. John 3.16 says it with such clarity, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only son. How did he give him? Was it just in the incarnation that Jesus was given to us? Well, no, I think the scriptures are pretty clear that God gave us his son in his death and his resurrection. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this. It says, God, that's the father, made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Jesus took on all of our sinfulness, all of our disobedience, all of our uh, kind of pining at the word of God. It goes on, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. While you and I deserved all of the punishment of unrighteousness and Jesus deserved all of the honor of of his righteous life, what God has done through faith is he switched that so that now Jesus has received the death I deserved and I have received the righteousness of Christ full blessing that comes to him. Can I ask you a question this morning? Do you sit beneath the word of God? Isn't that why Genesis 1 exists? To remind God's people that we should be people who 
see the authority of the word of God and place ourselves beneath it. I just want to say there's probably too many people in the world today that they want to sit above the word of God. They want to redefine what these words say. It's not for us, is it? Our place is to sit beneath these powerful words to recognize the authority of the God who created all things, who created us, and to find ourselves humbly submitted to it. I want to pray to that end. I want to pray for this series as we look at the book of Genesis that we might be people who sit beneath the authoritative word of God. That we might be people who define ourselves according to what God has done for us in Christ. Would you pray with me to that end? God, we pray now that you would establish your authority in our lives. We've seen from cover to cover how your word has full authority in the lives of those that you speak it to. That all of us have to figure out how we relate to the person of Jesus, whether we are believing or unbelieving. And if we believe, it leads to eternal life. If we don't believe, it leads to the wrath of God. So Lord, I pray now that you would allow us to submit our hearts and ourselves to your word. Allow this word from Genesis to speak with clarity and authority to us. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.